Jeremy does a review vlog of the Netflix documentary miniseries, High Score, Episode 6, about the history of Doom. Learn about John Romero and John Carmack, the heavy metal dudes who wanted to create a 3D sci-fi action adventure horror game with optional community online play. Learn about Dylan Cuthbert, a Game Boy hacker, and Giles Goddard, a coding wizard, two upstart rebels who went on to help design the first 3D game for the Super NES, Star Fox. Learn about Nolan Bushnell, the godfather of video games, and how he and other tech pioneers helped develop and advance the video game industry as we know it today. This and much more in this episode of Video Gamers Oasis' Playful Podcast. Stay tuned, if you dare. Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast. A playful variety talk show. For gamers. Video game history enthusiasts. Movie buffs. Collectors. And other fans of niche hobbies. Now available for YouTube and Anchor. Stay subscribed and notified for updates. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash anchor.fm forward slash video gamers oasis. And now, the host of the show, that meek geek of all trades, Jeremy from Video Gamers Oasis. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining. Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy, the host of the show. Welcome to the show. I haven't done a, a podcast episode for a long, long time. I've been doing a lot of resting. I've been dealing with a lot of changes in my life. So I've had to redo some reorganizing of my room, my life, kind of reorganizing my mind, kind of my, getting myself uh, in places of meditation so I can relax and plan my next move. So thanks for tuning in. I'm feeling refreshed, energized, and ready for another vlog, a vlog and a um, podcast to talk about gaming and, and the history of gaming. Uh, we've been, uh, if you've been tuning in um, to Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast and my YouTube channel, Video Gamers Oasis, also check out, you know, subscribe, click the notification bell. Also, podcast is available on Anchor.fm. It's Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast on Anchor.fm. It's also available on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to that podcast online as well. I'm going to have some new exciting uh, developments in the future for that podcast. It's going to be really exciting. Just kind of organizing the new, uh, my, my technology, organizing my uh, designs so I can coordinate the new changes to the podcast. But it's going to be really good and really, really uh, brilliant, brilliant changes that are going to happen. So welcome back to the show. If you've been following my podcast so far, you've been noticing that I've been doing a review vlog of the Netflix show High Score. It's available online on Netflix if you get a chance. The show is a six-part miniseries on the history of gaming, and they've interviewed various people. Episode 5, we learned about the history of fighting games. We learned about the creators of 
uh, Street Fighter 2 and how that became a major hit during the 90s. Also, Mortal Kombat became a major major uh, fighting game at that time. Extremely brutal, extremely realistic fighting game that ma- many parents were uh, very uh, uptight about. But it certainly uh, broke some barriers and certainly had some creative breakthroughs in photo uh, animation technology where they were able to imitate uh, video. They would actually take videos from actual martial artists and put them into the game, which is very revolutionary for the time. And then we learned about, and that the final segment of that episode, we learned about Night Trap, a controversial choose-your-adventure, point-and-click adventure game on, available on the Sega CD where you basically are uh, you're controlling a camera system, like a, a video system like we have here, with different cameras, and you have to protect these damsels in distress from these dangerous vampire-like creatures called augurs, which were basically hunchback ninjas with uh handles and and clamps that clamp on down on the lady's neck and they would drill into the its throat and drink the blood you know the story you know and um and you could you could push buttons on the game in the sega cd and create traps or make traps booby traps for the monsters to fall into and you save the girl of course it was a very controversial game it got a lot of bad publicity in washington a lot of uh Parents were extremely uh, panicky about the the violence and the horror in the game. So that was the time. Actually, sometimes the most horrible things in life can b- bring birth, birth to the most beautiful things and brilliant ideas. Because that was that was the time at that time uh, during Mortal Kombat and Night Trap, uh, the rating board was created to protect uh, parents and children from un- inappropriate games for the young ages, so they could have. They could have games for the very, very young children, teens, mature, adults only. So that way, just like we have a movie rating system, a cinema rating in the cinema world, in theaters, we now, because of those two horrible or brilliantly violent or action-packed movies, depending on how you look at it, those games, those games acted like catalysts for the rating system that was available for the video game business. And now, to this day, we don't let our children to play any game. We supervise our children. We we don't ban all games, but we filter our games so that only adults and mature people can play the more violent and horrific content. And I think that's a very fair and a nice uh, arrangement that we have now is that we don't have to act, be a totalitarian state, but we can we can have a, a society which allows more mature and shocking content, but only for adults. And people who are mature enough to know the difference between reality and fantasy was quite an educational series so far. Now we're, ne- we're, now we're moving on to episode six. There's a review vlog, so I do encourage you to watch the show if you haven't already, because we're going to do a deep dive into the... Uh, episode contents going to do a lot of review uh, deep diving into the people and the interviews so i do encourage you if you don't want to be have information spoiled to you that you watch the show on netflix yourself before we get on with the story and origin of the pc game doom here's a word from our sponsor the new era in roller coin has just begun play games complete daily tasks 
level up your season pass and get more free rewards than ever. Upgrade the season pass to enjoy exclusive event pass items. This update includes new store, unique daily of offers, room skins, miners collections, and many more. Don't waste your time and hurry up to join the game. RollerCoin. Click the link in the description below. Okay, we're back. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you, you're listening to and watching Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast, it's a fun, lighthearted podcast where I talk about games, but I also talk about sci-fi movies, collectibles, things that appeal to the geek and gamer, the gamer geek, whatever you want to call what I, There's already a geeks and gamer on YouTube, but this is for people in general who like gaming and like collectibles, sci-fi, comic books, things like that. It's a very lighthearted, loose, relaxed, not uptight at all. And I want to, I want to be able to, in the future, planning to have guests on the show. Just got to get organized a little bit more and be able to have more content, more, um, uh, more uh, professionals who know more of what I like to talk about. I don't have all the answers, so I like to surround myself with people who do know more about these topics. And there are a lot of great gamers and uh, geeks on the internet that I would like to talk to in the future. And maybe friends in my in my circle of friends as well. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about Doom, the history origins of the PC game Doom. So they they were introducing uh, the first interview was with a gentleman named John Romero. And of course, he had a friend who was not interviewed in the show named John Carmack. Now, John, uh, John Romero says in the interview that he wanted to make something dark and scary. So he released one of the most violent video games ever made at that, up, up to that point. And I do remember playing Doom and even games like that, like Quake and similar games uh, that dealt with sort of a sci-fi horror aspect. You're going to a room fighting all these monsters that are coming at you. Uh, 3D effects. I remember playing a lot of, you know, a game like Tremulous, which was very similar. You can see the influence to this day. This game was very revolutionary and setting a standard for 3D gaming. John Romero says in his interview, There's a dark environment. Picture this. Light is strobing, demons are coming at you, and you just see silhouettes and fireballs coming towards you. We wanted to scare the crap out of you, and nobody had ever seen anything like it before. And so there was a new era of gaming where players could enter, explore, and play against each other. And it came at a pivotal moment when both computers and consoles were about to enter a new dimension. And that was, of course, the internet. Romero's machine of, of choice was the PC. It started in 1989 when Romero began making games for a subscription service called Gamer's Edge. Every month, you would get a disc for whatever computer that you were subscribing for, and of that disc, that would be a bunch of random stuff. 
whether you like it or not, you're getting it and hopefully there'll be a game or something fun on it. So these games would be almost like a cluster in a one disc and they would get it in the mail and it was like a subscription service just like you subscribe to a magazine or a newspaper service you wouldn't have much choice of the articles that you would read you just basically read whatever articles are available on that magazine that magazine or or newspaper same thing with the gamers edge it was basically a anthology or a you could say a monthly smorgasbord where you get a, a little serving of a few games in one disc. So 22 year old Romero paired up with another young hotshot programmer named John Carmack to make games that were actually worth worth it for the subscriber. So they joined forces these two guys they wanted to actually make games that were of a higher level of challenge and enjoyment than the usual uh, freeware or shareware games or the usual kind of uh, simple platformers that were available in the gamers edge it was validating the PC as an actual game playing machine and this this was a big breakthrough for PC gaming so they so uh, John and John you could say needed to make their company uh, and make their game so Romero saw that the PC could compete with the gaming consoles of the time, but even in the world of Nintendo, there was still a limit to how deep a player could go. Enter Dylan Cuthbert, the next person on the interview. Up to that point, Nintendo titles played out in, low, in, in, uh, in simple dimensions. Run left, run right, jump up, jump down. And so far, so, so far they hadn't figured out how to place the player inside the game from the first-person perspective with 3D polygonal graphics where it's a first-person uh, aspect of the gaming that hadn't been developed yet. So Dylan Cutworth was from the UK and he was a brash high school dropout. And He said, I left school when I was 17 and for a job at a company called Argonaut Software and at that time it was a very leading-edge 3D games company. Now, Argonaut, the company, was trying to make a name for themselves among the gaming giants, and they were counting on 3D to make it happen. Cuthbert goes on to say, Immediately, I was thrown into making a game for Game Boy, a 3D game. Cuthbert goes on to say, Immediately, I was thrown into making a game for the Game Boy, a 3D game, sort of fly-everywhere shooting kind of game. Making a 3D game for the Game Boy was unheard of, but that wasn't the only problem facing the team. Nintendo fiercely guarded their trade secrets, so if you wanted to legally develop games on any of Nintendo's systems, you needed a permission slip, which Argonaut didn't have. But they went forward with the project anyway, just to see if they, it could be done. Cuthbert goes on to say, and we had no official dev kits. No official license, nothing at all. We just had a Game Boy. We just kind of ripped everything apart and just attached wires and basically hacked in the connections on the chip to come out so we could actually give it different data. And here we have an illustration, a photograph illustration of the 
Nintendo Game Boy that Dil that Cuthbert uh, basically hacked without any prior consent, without any experience. He basically uh, hacked into the 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 board and and did uh, editing on the Game Boy to create a 3D effect. Dylan figured out how to code a wireframe-based space demo that ran in 3D. Cuthbert goes on to say that's how we knocked up the initial 3D sort of demo on the Game Boy. Very unofficially, so we kind of got away with it. Or so they thought. Dylan goes on to say six months into the project, it got seen by someone from a Nintendo. Hacking Nintendo could mean trouble. Pretty deep legal trouble. It would be... Not a position you'd want to be in, for sure, especially during that time. But more than anything, Nintendo seemed curious. Cuthbert goes on to say, suddenly my boss says, the people who made the Game Boy don't believe that. That 3D can run on the Game Boy. So in two weeks, you're flying to Japan. They had a trip to, he had a trip to Japan to meet the uh, Japanese executives in Nintendo. So the Netflix episode quickly switches back to Romero and, and Carmack. So going back to those two gentlemen, Romero and, uh, and his team were already, already developed 3D prior to, to Dylan tinkering with the uh, Game Boy. They were already full steam ahead on the 3D. And uh, they cracked the Nintendo code on the PC, and that was the beginning for Romero and his team. Romero said, "We were already past that." And they empowered. The, the, they were so confident with their achievement, they they were they decided to quit their jobs and form their own company, ID Software. So they were so empowered by their achievement of discovering 3D, cracking the 3D code, the cracking the 3D code on the PC that they, they decided to quit their jobs, employment, and form their own company, id Software. And by 1992, they had taken their newfound, smooth-moving, side-scrolling tech and turned it inside out. They created this three-dimensional, texture-mapped game called Wolfenstein one of the hottest selling computer games in the world. They were created a hit game and popularizing a new perspective, first person shooter. Come on to Romero, they decided they wanted to, they wanted to do something more than just the usual side scrolling action stuff. So Wolfenstein 3D came out in May 5th of 1992 and it experienced massive success. People love blowing away Nazis in this uh, in this World War II fantasy sci-fi kind of game. It was very far-fetched and bizarre. You were in a cake in a giant uh, castle, a German castle during World War II, and you were like a spy or a hero a soldier, American soldier, going into the castle, shooting Nazis that would approach you. You could kick down doors, I believe. I believe, and you. I remember playing a little bit as a young youngster. Uh, at a friend's house and you would and there would there would be like corridors and secret traps and uh, of course spoiler alert 
You'd meet Hitler in the end, and he'd be wearing a cybernetic suit. It was a lot of a ver, ver, lot of imagination, a lot of bizarre creativity, and people loved it. People loved uh, pre pretending to be the uh, hero during World War II. And it was a 3D game going at 70 frames a second in full color with real digital sound for the first time. CPUs were just fast enough to make Wolfenstein run fast. And so they were on the edge of technology. In just a few short years, Romero and his team built a successful company and transformed the personal computer into a immersive action-packed game platform. These were the building blocks for their ultimate masterpiece. Basically every game that they had made were building up to something new and different and better than with each new game. So th it was a progression. Each game was a building block. So they started to think about the next game and how they would develop technology. So the bullet point list that we came up with so John and John, Romero and Carmack, started to think about what the next game would be after their, after their great achievement. They would not rest on their laurels. They would continue climbing up the ladder of success. So they were kept on, they kept thinking together and brainstorming. What could they do to improve the technology in the next game, make it even more exciting? So they created a bullet point list to a very ambitious bullet point list for what they wanted in their new game. They wanted a game that was creepy. So they wanted to, they had a, they had a design for or a plan to make it making a diminished lighting. And they wanted realistic movement and they wanted a high speed a high speed action game. They wanted the ability to play with your friends so they could create multiplayer functionality. Friends could get together on a Saturday night, Friday night, have some beers or some snacks, get together and play in a room together or possibly even long distance and play against each other or play with each other as partners. Romero said we needed to have the ultimate, ultimate, which would let people play each other on a network over a modem. Now, some of us here are uh, old enough to remember AOL Online. And they would always start when you'd, you'd have to manually log in just to start the Internet. And you'd hear that dial-up tone. And then... Welcome to AOL. Welcome, you'd hear that voice. But you'd have to wait. Thing is, you'd have to wait for it to di the dial up to turn on. And sometimes, if someone was on the phone, like your mom, you basically had to wait to the person, either wait for the person to finish talking or tell them, Mom, can you get out the phone? I'm on the computer playing on online gaming. So, Sometimes if you didn't do that, the AOL online service would shut down and you would be disconnected from the internet in the middle of a game. So it was all new. People were still figuring it out. 
According to Romero, there were games that were multiplayer on modems, but they weren't games that were high speed and were networked. At that time, computers could connect online and mostly just play slow, simple games like war, golf, strategy games that played out in turns. There were limitations, Romero noticed, and there were limitations that uh, they wanted to create because they because of these limitations they wanted to create an action game with a that could create uh, an action-packed shooting uh, extravaganza these online people playing these games together on a modem which was very revolutionary because most of these games I even remember playing AOL games or games like this on a simple online computer I'd play chess I'd have friends talk to me online hey you want to play some chess on AOL we're going to play some, or M we'd have actually MSN too, online MSN games. But they were very similar. Basically, they were just simple little two-dimensional board games. And you could compete with each other with these little board games. They also had, of course, war games. They had golf games, strategy games. But they were very limited. They were term-based. That's the, That's the thing. None, no games at the up up to that point when Doom was created were uh, more than just turn-based, and this Doom was really a revolutionary game because it allowed real-time action to be played online with community. No one had ever done that before. Carmack got to work on figuring out simultaneous remote gameplay, and according to Romero. He had to think of an, a name for the new game that they were designing. And he was inspired by a classic, a modern 80s classic, Tom Cruise movie called The Color of Money. And Tom Cruise is in the pool hall and he's about to play against some guy and he, he brought his own stick, his own pool cue. So the guy comes up and he's like, what you got in there? And Tom Cruise looks down and he goes, Doom with his big smile and it was like wow what a great name Romero Romero was inspired by that scene in that movie so very very funny story after they had named the game that they were going to create this is where it gets even more bold and brash Romero says that we put a press release out and just saying how awesome this game is going to be which is crazy because nobody does that. We put a, pr a press release out uh, and uh, saying that before we created it, basically, before we created the game, we'd, we didn't care. But we said, basically, it's going to be an awesome game. Uh, it says, basically, in the press release right here, this is the first game to really exploit the power of LANs, lands, and to and modems to, to their full potential. In 1993, we fully expect to be the number one cause of decreased productivity. And so they promised 3D realism, making the most par powerful cooperative game and its release landmark in the software industry. So basically, they, they created their own reality. Long story short, they created the game in their, in their minds, in their imagination before they even created it in in the physical w world which was pretty wild and pretty good pretty amazing uh, example 
of the power of the imagination. If you really uh, visualize something uh, enough and put enough detail and, and have enough confidence, love ball, pardon, enough balls behind it, you can achieve amazing things in this world. So with that, the team of id inadvertently gave themselves a hard deadline and a lot of hype. They had to work like hell and uh, to to make this make this game a reality. So Romero was confident that their idea would have mass appeal. For Dylan in Japan, Nintendo's attempt to get into 3D was all about was all under seal. Behind closed doors, he was preparing up preparing to show the Super FX chip was up to the task. According to Cutberth, he said, We showed them a demo where you could fly around in, in 3D on the Game Boy that he had created. He created a 3D chip. He created a 3D, uh, the, he created the, uh, he had edited the Game Boy and allowed it to be, to show 3D. Not everyone thought so. Cuthbert said Miyamoto couldn't really get his head around the fly everywhere thing. He didn't like the fact that the player ha has to really think about how not just here, but like all around. So Miyamoto said, go back for Christmas, you know, everybody, and then come back, like go, have a vacation for Christmas, and everyone go back for the new year. We'll carry on development. And I'll see what I can think up of and to kind of help this uh, situation, how we, we can solve this problem. So after the Christmas vacation, Miyamoto came to Dylan and he said, I had a great idea over the new year. You see, every year the Japanese go for a sort of pilgrimage to shrines. I think Shinto is the religion of Japan and they call it Hatsumode. Miyamoto went to the Fushimi Inari shrine very near where Nintendo was at that time. And it has three thousands, three thousands it has thousands of these vermilion colored gates. Miyamoto said, I was moving through the gates and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could just, we were flying through these gates, enjoying the thrill of just going through these things rather than just shooting things all the time. Miyamoto had, disco Miyamoto had discovered a fix to his problem. By allowing the gamer to fly through gates, he could control the action so the player could not, would not have to worry about what was behind them. It was the foundation of what would become the iconic Nintendo game. Something interesting in Fushimi Inari Shrine itself, the word Inari means fox. And so that's the, basically where the classic Super NES game Star Fox was developed and it was inspired by the Inari Shrine, the Shinto Shrine that Miyamoto went through. And of course, the uh, the going through the the rings. There were a lot of rings in the uh, in the game where the, the hero Star Fox would have to fly his ship through various rings. It was inspired by the Inari Shrine in, in Japan. It all originated from that walk that Miyamoto had. But it would take more than just a walk at a shrine for those groundbreaking visuals to take off. So Dylan called in his wingman, Giles Goddard, programmer of the Star Fox. And here he's pictured here in a young, young photograph here. 
in, J in Japan. And here's a more mature Giles Goddard here. According to Cuthbert, Giles is, a, is one of the first people I met when I joined Argonaut Software. The two of them may have had some disagreements with how things are to be done or they would have personality clashes at time. They would, they would work together and they were known as a dynamic duo and they would take Kyoto by storm creating the Star Fox game for the Super NES. Goddard says 20 years ago Japan was a very different place. There were very few foreign tourists, very few foreigners at all. It was scary but it was fun because we were 18 and we just been on a first class flight from London, all expenses paid. So we just thought we were we were rock stars. So two blokes in Kyoto, Kyoto, all expenses paid. What could go wrong? So they there's a shot of the two of them, Dylan and Giles, hanging out a at a a bar called the Backgammon in Japan, and they would have it was gring, grungy and gritty and dirty, and it was a lot of fun. And they they share they'd have a couple of beers uh, at the uh, at the bar. And they would reminisce how they would use a dictionary, the two of them, just to uh, just to communicate with the people in Japan. They taught. They said how they would they would carry a Japanese to English dictionary in their pockets, back pockets, and they would take them around bars and you use it to try to talk to people, and also have plenty of drinks at the bar and eventually their Japanese got smoother and smoother and they were able to communicate with the with the bartender in the in the episode they showed and when Dylan and Giles did squeeze it in work they found that they were truly outsiders in the office according to Goddard according to Goddard they never had anybody outside of Nintendo working in the building they actually made a separate office for us in one room on our own, basically segregated out. And according to Dylan, they would, they, they would, uh, and the only place in the office where they allowed Miyamoto to smoke was in the area that they were. So picture this: the two of the two of these guys from England, from UK, foreigners in a foreign land. They were in the heart of Nintendo. They had a room segregated from all the other p workers. They were programming away this new design for this uh, Star Fox game that they were working on, a 3D game for the Super NES. And Ink walks in, none other, Miyamoto. He's puffing on his cigarettes while they're working on it. <laughs> and according to, uh, according to these guys, they said, we were like programming away and we're like, oh no, oh, he's back again. So we try. We were trying to implement something quite interesting, and, and it just he just starts talking about trees or something. So he would start going off on these tangents because Miyamoto was very right brain, and he still is today. He's a very right brain designer. He thinks very creatively, outside the box thinking, and he would go off on tangents on creative ideas like trees and plants and buildings and weird caves. He would, he would go off on tangents on all these creative ideas. 
But he realized after a while that that's actually the reason why he's so much of a creative genius is because his brain is kind of thinking about all these different things at the same time. And one of the tasks with the Star Fox game that Miyamoto was so focused on was the perspective on the, of the camera. In a 2D camera, a 2D game, the camera moves are simple. The game syncs its movement with the character, left, right, and so on. But things got a little more complicated in 3D. That was the biggest feature of 3D according to Goddard, the ability to move the camera. And it was Miyamoto's main job to figure out the camera. If the camera's right behind the R-wing, the, the it would feel like you weren't turning. But if it was fixed, it would feel like it's going all over the place. You've got to have a lag between the camera and the ship movement. Otherwise, it feels like you're not turning. But you can't do too much of that. Otherwise, the player feels like things are moving too much and they feel disoriented. It's a balance game between looking cool and playability. So programming on the Star Fox was happening. Ships were flying, lasers were lasering. It was all coming together and then the art department got involved. According to Cuthbert, for a long time on the project, it really was just like an old school Star Wars style, kind of a little bit of more hardcore. But there were no people, no human beings in this, in this game. But Nintendo was known for its cute, family-friendly characters. And that sacred shrine that Miyamoto loved so much was dedicated to a fox. According to Cutford, suddenly the artists at Nintendo started coming up with all these cute little character designs, fluffy sort of animals, and things like that. And Goddard said, to be honest, I thought they were quite lame. Cuthbert goes on to say it felt a bit odd because they're animals and we're like, why are animals flying spacecraft? I don't know what's going on here. But one thing that Miyamoto really in instilled in us all is that we take a step back, kind of look at it and go, okay, no, this needs to be made more fun. He, uh, Miyamoto approaches things from not just the player point of view, but also from how he, how he can design the experience. So they were, they shows some of the artwork, the original artwork they were doing, the sketching. I have here a design of the actual, actual, I have here a cartoon a description, a cartoon display of all these characters. And we have the actual characters listed here. Fox McCloud in the center here could chat with his sidekicks Peppy Hair on the right here, and we have Peppy Hair on the right, Falco Lombardi on the on the far left corner, and Slippy Toad right next to right next to him right here to present mission objectives and to make the game more engaging. One of the unique things about Star Fox was that it was on a console because up, up until that point, there hadn't been any 3D games on consoles. The combination of Dylan and Guile's coding wizardry and Nintendo design, the magic worked. All of it was mixed together 
They had a beautiful achievement. The game would go on to sell over 4 million copies and blast Nintendo into the 3D realm. When the Netflix episode goes back to the US, switches quickly back to John Romero and John Carmack. And these two gentlemen were designing the Doom game. They were putting it into practice after they made, left this incredible, this incredible uh, promotional press release saying it was going to be the source of, it was going to have amazing 3D graphics, the source of uh, an alien online uh, service play and, and be the source of, of lack of productivity across the, across the, the US and the world. So they made all these promises and now they had to take the game. Romero says, after putting out the press release, we knew that Doom was going to be a pretty big game because we had people calling the office to ask, when is this game going to come out? Ding, ling, ling. Hey, where's Doom? Is Doom out? What's Doom all about? And so like people were ex so excited, it was crazy. Romero's press release promised gamers they'd be knee deep in the dead before the end of the year. Now all they had to do was make the game. Romero says the team that made Doom was pretty small. It was just five people, so it was a lot of work. Like what is Doom? And the first major idea was that it, it would be fighting a demon invasion. So Romero shows some early rough sketches of some thumbnail ideas for the game. These were some sketches of what the levels could probably look like. And he said, according to Romero, he said, how about we, with, we'd have blood dripping down from these walls. This is, of course, with the walls of hell, depict an uh, artist's conception of hell. That's what the engine would render. And then they had the ideas. And the Romero talks about the ideas for the various demons in the game. And he described describing them while he showing the these thumbnails, and he would show. Uh, I'm just going to describe what I why I saw in the pictures. He showed some various round blobs with legs, horns, and large mouths with jagged teeth. Bottom, <clears throat> bottom two, a winged creature. Other, a spider-legged skull. So these were highly original ideas. Some of them pretty funny, according to Romero. It's like what's going on here? He shows a humanoid, humanoid in the in the interview, a humanoid-shaped demon, no neck, cyclops with its mouth where its groin should be. Quite a bizarre idea, kind of design. And if they actually, and it, you know, they, if they actually looked this way in Doom, history would have been a little bit different. So according to Romero, they decided that. The idea would be the hero would be a space marine in the future on a military base. And this is like a research thing gone bad. And here comes the demons. Narrator says, but the story was just a backdrop for cyber demons. Exploding chunks of flesh and insane weapons. We wanted to have conventional weapons that the players could actually would totally get into. Like shotguns, chainsaws, why wouldn't we want a chains to chainsaw? Why wouldn't you want to chainsaw a demon? According to Romero. And you could also use your fist to punch these demons in the face. 
And then we could add a couple of space age weapons to kind of spice it up. That's where we came up with the plasma gun, and we really liked the idea of shooting rockets at demons. That was just nuts. And then there was the BFG. The B is for big, G is for gun, and you know you know what the F stands for. And then the <clears throat> the BFG was basically the ultimate weapon. I remember playing a game called Tremulous on the PC. And it was very much inspired by Doom. You were instead of fighting demons, you were fighting like these uh, these extraterrestrials, similar to the Xenomorphs in the Alien movie, Aliens movies. And the you one of the weapons was a giant cannon device called the Lucifer cannon, and it was very sim. I could see the inspiration right now where they got the idea for the BFG. Uh, I can see where the Lucifer cannon was inspired by the BFG, pardon me. And uh, you can see to this day all kinds of first-person shooters owe their existence to the original Doom game. So in the fall of 1993, Romero and the team were approaching their launch and Carmack finally figure out how to let players battle each other over the network in multiplayer mode. According to Romero, when Carmack got the game working between two computers, where he's shooting one computer and the other guy getting hit, it was like, oh, there it is, it's happening. That's right, strategy in Doom would completely change in multiplayer mode. Instead of battling demons, you could battle your friends online. When there is another player in the game, it's totally different than playing monsters. People play so differently than, than the AI. They're luring you, they're hiding, and that is a real challenge, you know, playing somebody else. After seeing the characters shooting each other, I was thinking, what could, what would we call this? It's like a cage match kind of thing, except you're killing the other player over and over. It's like a death match. So death match is great. That sounds cool. I think we, I think I'll name it that. So to this day, we use that terminology, deathmatch, for online FPS gaming, competitive gaming. Narrator goes on to say that Romero knew the game was going to be cool, but he still wanted to make sure everyone got hooked. So he and his team decided to give players a free sample. Romero says, shareware in games was to take a game and split it into three parts. And the first one is fully free as a downloadable file, but if you wanted more, then you would order the other two parts of the game in diskettes, on diskettes. It was a pretty revolutionary marketing idea at the time, and it worked really well. We knew that at the end of the day that we would be able to make money because, number one, we believed it was the best game in the world, and because it was so good, we believed people would want to buy the rest of it. You know, that they would want to get all the the all three episodes because playing those first nine levels is gonna get old at some point. You're going to get to want to the rest of the story. So finally, when the game was about about to be released, the server was packed full of people who can't wait to download the game. So I'm like, oh my god, yeah! So that's how kids in computer labs around the country at that time found themselves at midnight on December 10th. 1993, ready to download the first chapter of Doom. 
According to Romero, everyone was initiating the file transfer at the time, so the server just crashed. And then they brought the server back up, all these false people re reconnected, and did it again, and the whole thing crashed again because of the outrageous amount of online activity on the website. But then people started to copy it onto other servers all around the world, sharing with each other, and then every, everybody started playing. Online multiplayer games would become a pretty big deal. Deathmatch and online gameplay changed everything, according to Romero. There's a scene with Romero and friends in a room together. There's a scene with Romero and his friends online to, in a room together playing Doom multiplayer. And the players could connect over a network and interact, in, immersing themselves in a new world, but with each other. According to Romero, for the first time, you could play a, a, in a high-speed 3D world where you're blowing your friends apart. It's really fun to play against each other in Deathmatch, and it influenced everybody in wanting to make games. And, at the, and, that, and then the guys at id handed players the keys to their kingdom. We fully opened the game, according to Romero, and we gave out the information on the way that levels were created. So Doom was open for modding. Modding, for those who are not familiar with that terminology, where tech-savvy players could replace the existing characters, sound effects, textures, you name it, with their own creations. They could, people who, people started to make their new graphics, new graphics, new weapons, and new sounds and stuff. And in the interview, in the actual episode, it showed various modded versions of the original Doom game, PC game, replacing guns with bows and arrows, crossbows, double blaster, saber, even a toothbrush. There was even modded games where they created a whole new game with the Doom uh, original uh, design, the original uh, programming. They created a Batman mod, Doom, they created a Nintendo Game Boy with Nintendo characters, Doom mod, and even a Homer Simpson with Duff Beer weapons mod for Doom. So picture yourself as Homer Simpson. You're throwing Duff Beer at your enemies in the game. So it's a lot of bizarre and very creative ideas. Uh, they actually, the Batman, the cartoon Batman version looks most appealing to me. According to Romero, we... And it was basically everything that you can see in the game can be changed. But, here's the catch. But, according to Romero, we didn't allow anyone to modify Doom if they didn't buy the game. So you have to, you have, so if you have the shareware version of Doom, you can't run levels or mods or anything. So that was actually kind of a way of forcing people to buy the game. But players want to be creative. It's a lot e easier to modify than to try to make a whole new thing, according to Romero. So letting people mod a game kind of gives a, them a taste of what it's like to make a game. And now the game, you know, fits them better. So Doom was, was put in the hands of the players, according to the narrator, and they made it their own. Romero says the game lives on forever. And uh, the narrator ends that story with, in a way, Romero's story is the story of the entire video game industry. So the end, the end of the episode 
one, one, one final interview that was not directly related with Doom, but without this gentleman's influence and his, uh, his uh, bold achievements in the video game industry, we, I, I'm not even sure we would have a video game industry like we have today. His name, was, his name is Nolan Bushnell, and this is the original story. Each new game was built upon the foundation crafted by the game before. And because of that, it can be her, her, um, hard to remember the humble beginnings of what would become this billion-dollar entertainment juggernaut. We have ideas of Super Mario Brothers 3, Donkey Kong, Miss Pac-Man, E.T., Space Invaders, Pong. But there is one man who remembers, and the man, of course, is Nolan Bushnell. He was, his, he was dubbed the godfather of video games. He's a very jolly fellow in the interview. And he says in, in the interview, In my mind, there was a huge payoff for being indisputably number one in whatever you do. According to the narrator, it was 1964 when Bushnell stumbled upon the, an idea that would spark a new industry. Bushnell says, I was in college and one of my fraternity brothers said, hey, meet me at the engineering building at midnight and I'm going to blow your socks off. I said, huh? You know, I always wanted, always wanted to have my socks blown off. I showed up. And he had jammed the lock of the computer center. And he went in and for the rest of the evening played this game. Space War. And I was mesmerized. Space War was unlike anything Bushnell had seen before. It had been invented two years earlier by a bunch of kids at MIT. According to the, uh, it was the Tech Nobel Railroad Club in 1959 that had designed this this uh, early model. They were the original hackers. In fact, they coined the term, and just for fun, ended up transforming a computer into an entirely new contraption, the video game. Bushnell said. You'd fly around and you could shoot a missile and you could push a button and thrust. In order to slow down, you had to reverse thrust in the opposite direction. Totally followed Newton's first law. And it was really fun. And Bushnell went on to say, and I know that if I could put a coin slot on that screen, that it would make money. Bushnell saw that video games were far more than just for, for computer nerds. They were for everyone. And so he founded a company called Atari. And basically the rest is history. He was the first in a long line of visionaries. Visionaries who changed the way we play. So that was the, the miniseries, high score, summed up. I tried not to reveal too much. I want you guys to see it for yourself. I just wanted to, re to talk about uh, how, what I found uh, most intriguing and most enjoyable. I found this uh, very educational, learning about the various 
Minds Behind Gaming. I hope you enjoyed this uh, review vlog of the story of Doom and how Nolan Bushnell was instrumental or was the was very revolutionary in creating the video game industry as we see it today. And without his, without Nolan Bushnell's influence, we wouldn't have games like Doom because it's each game designer helped the uh, the next game designer down the road. So I hope you enjoyed uh, the review vlog. Leave your comments below. What was your favorite story? Did you like the story of the uh, <clears throat> the Doom design? Or perhaps you the origin of the 3D game Star Fox? Or perhaps Nolan Bushnell. You'd like to learn about Nolan Bushnell and the various people that he helped. Leave your comments below. I do appreciate your feedback. That's, the, that's basically the, the review vlog. And I'm going to be taking a little break from doing review vlogs for a while to work on my website and on smaller video projects. I'm going to continue doing Video Gamers Oasis YouTube videos, but I'm going to make sure that they're a little bit more simpler and more smaller bite-sized projects. I'm going to be continuing uh, reading the the audio, uh, making an audio version of the book uh, Art of Atari by Tim Lepatino, the story of the various artwork that was designed for the Atari company. But in the meantime, I'm going to also uh, do a rev going to transfer, not transfer, any new podcast episodes that you see from now on. They're going to be, uh, I have a new YouTube channel for just the podcast, Video Gamers Always Playful Podcast. And that, my friends, is what I'm going to talk about very quickly is that this is the last episode on Video Gamers Oasis that I'm going to be doing for the podcast. All my all future podcast episodes will be on an exclusively exclusive separate YouTube channel. So I hope you'll uh, subscribe to that channel. The link in the description. Also in my video, you'll see a video link to the new podcast channel. And on that channel, we talk we talk about my favorite games. I talk about collector's cards every week. I'm trying to working on getting a, a different collector card this discussion. I talk about comic books, collectible figurines, stuff, uh, sci-fi, fantasy, monster movies, movies, uh, kind of movies and TV shows that appeal to a certain genre of people, gamers and geeks. I'm going to be working on on that podcast separately because it's more of a variety show. It's not just gaming. It's also for people who like. Um, collectibles and things that are kind of oddball but still fun for the gamer and geek community. Uh, Video Gamers Oasis is going to be more focused on, on the topic of gaming. I'm going to be re really working on staying very, very focused on topics for the channel. I, I also want to mention, I wasn't going to mention originally, but I thought it would be a good idea that the um, we have the okay. We have Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast, which just has a new YouTube channel. Please subscribe. Click the link in the description. But I'm also working on a all Minecraft YouTube channel. I'm going to be making some Let's Plays or some online uh, recordings on Twitch. Link in the description and taking some of those videos and putting putting them in a, in a YouTube Twitch channel. Uh, it's I, I decided to really zone in on the video game the gamer crowd make it more of a very exclusive kind of YouTube channel and I'm taking all the Minecraft videos 
in the future, I've already have Minecraft videos on Video Gamers Oasis, but any future Minecraft videos will be on Video Gamers Oasis or Vig Video Gamers Oasis um, Toots. I, kind of a goofy thing I'm working on. Uh, links in the description for that YouTube channel, exclusively a Minecraft uh, YouTube channel. Still under development, but I'm going to be really uh, segregating topics to make, make it more exclusive to people who like those kind of things. So. The Video Gamers Oasis, let's go review that folks. The Video Gamers Oasis YouTube channel, original channel, is the promotional YouTube channel uh, to promote the website, videogamersoasis.com. It is a video, gamers away, video game knowledge educational website where I do a lot of video game knowledge. Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast YouTube channel is exclusive for the podcast where we, do, we talk about gaming, comic books, sci-fi movies, collectibles, things like that. And then the third one, which is I don't, I, which I haven't made many videos for that one so far, but I will be adding more videos in the future, is VGO Toots. It is strictly oh, Minecraft Toots, basically. I haven't fixed, I uh, haven't really uh, etched out the name, but the link in the description, exclusively a, a Minecraft channel. And that will, any Minecraft that I do will be uploaded in the future. To that channel so i hope i i've made it as clear as mud i'm jeremy from video gamers oasis thanks for tuning in to video gamers oasis playful podcasts available on anchor.fm as well as spotify and i hope you'll uh you'll you'll be patient as i transition to this new kind of format that i'm working on i do appreciate your patience and i want to make this as fun and as accessible as possible so i'm always working on refining myself and refining the pro the the software. I do appreciate all the the gurus on YouTube, uh, the YouTube gurus who have given so much so much uh, helpful advice on for free. I do appreciate you guys very much uh, for your helpful advice, and uh, you've been very influential in helping me to make these changes. So in the meantime, I would appreciate if you would subscribe to Video Gamers Oasis, click the notification bell to be notified of future videos, and of course those other YouTube channels that I'm working on, links in the description as well as on the video. Thanks for watching, take care of each other. Uh, I hope you have an awesome summer ahead. Take care of each other, stay healthy, stay strong. We'll see you refreshed and energized in another day. Till next time, bye for now.